We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, making our way just systematically through this letter that Peter wrote, of course, inspired by God's Spirit. If you need to borrow a Bible, we'll be happy to loan you one. Jaime's going to come down and hold them up. You can just wave at him, and he has some extra Bibles so you can follow with us. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're looking at verses 4 through 8 this morning. I entitled our message, I took it right out of the text, as living stones. I wanted to call it as living Legos, but as living stones. All right. So everyone there, you got your Bibles, your devices? All right, would you stand with me, please? I'm going to read these scriptures, and we stand in honor of God and his word. Although there are a couple of verses that are a little bit longer, Peter quotes from the Old Testament, as you'll see. He says, coming to him, so coming to Christ, verse 4, as to, or coming to him, a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And then he says, you also. So just like Jesus is a living stone, we too, as living stones, we're being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, it also contained in the scriptures. So Peter quotes the Bible. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter says, therefore, again, to you who believe, Jesus is precious. And I pray that's true for you. But contrast to those who are disobedient or to those who are unbelieving, that prophecy also remains true. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And Peter adds his commentary, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which or by which they were appointed. All right, we'll pause there and let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Lord, we thank you for the rain. We know the farmers need it. The crops need it. We're grateful, Lord, for your word describes uh, rain as a form of your grace on the just and the unjust, how you graciously provide for your creation and for us. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that. And Lord, we're grateful for your word. And for Peter, inspired of your spirit, who captured these thoughts and words as we read them today and we trust, Lord, that you have something you want to say to us. As much as you want to say to the original audience that would read these scrolls and read these letters, Lord, there are things that you want to reveal and challenge, encourage us today. And so, God, I, I pray you would help us that we would yield to you, to what you want to say and what you want to do. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you take a moment, say hello to somebody? We have a lot of visitors. Would you welcome them and introduce yourself to somebody new? So if, if you're with us, and even if you weren't with us, I, I pray that you know this. Last week in the previous verses, Peter encouraged his readers, of course, as we read it today, uh, encourage us about the importance of Bible reading, of Bible study. And he had exhorted us to cultivate a healthy appetite for the Word of God. And he did so by 
using a, a metaphor, a simile, that he likened the longing that you and I should have as followers of Christ to a newborn baby and the newborn baby's desire for milk. And we talked about how that is the primary means by which we grow spiritually. And growing spiritually is God's heart for us. It's God's desire. It's the Father's desire that we would mature in matters of faith and that we would grow spiritually strong. And Peter says, we do that by way of consuming the scriptures. That's how that's accomplished. And so we added to that, uh, maybe I should say expanded that or amplified that, in that if that's going to happen, then we need to uh, cultivate this appetite. And one of the ways that we do that is then we should pass on the worldly junk food that our flesh so easily craves. And along with that, we should have uh, a discernment that we will not settle for a watered-down gospel, that we wouldn't settle for diluted doctrines or, or candied theology that really serves us no good. It just it malnourishes the soul, and it, it causes spiritual atrophy. Now, as we read the Word of God, and we study the Word of God, one of the wonderful things that you have noticed and you will notice is that when we have a consistent diet of Bible reading, uh, how illustrative the authors of the scriptures were. Of course, inspired by God's spirit, but, but the Bible in itself isn't just a, a book of history. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of poetry. It's a book of prophecy. Uh, it's a book of narratives. I mean, there's one lens where you can look at it as a form of beautiful literature that's filled with all of these literary devices like prose and uh, poems. There, there's chiastic patterns. There's parables. Jesus would speak in parables. There's idioms. There's hyperbole. There's metaphors. There's similes. And in one way, as you study scripture, to look at those forms of scriptural literature, it provides us a, a whole additional insight and admiration for the scriptures in themselves, for the beauty and the power of God's word, and of course, ultimately for God himself. Now, Peter leads with those metaphors. He, he, he's given us a number of them already that describe our salvation and that describe our relationship with God the Father. He led with, well, we're pilgrims, right? We are, we are spiritual gaijin. We're temporary residents. He says we're exiles. He also, he also said we're that we're the elect. He likened us to um, obedient children. And so he's, he's already used these various word pictures. But think, of, think with me about the other ways in which the Bible describes our salvation. And even when we use that word salvation, it means that we're saved. But we'll make it class participation. You guys ready? You'd be very uncomfortable, I call on you. What are some other ways that the Bible describes our salvation? Anybody? Bueller? Anyone? 
Ed? Life. Life, very good. Anybody else? <laughs> How about Chaplain Wayne? You got one for us, chaps? Light, very good. Okay, light. Wedding. Wedding, yeah, we're, we're described as a bride. Very good. We're saved. We're sanctified. We're washed. We're rescued. We're redeemed. We are far but brought near. We were lost but we're found. We were dead but we're alive. Um, what else? Anybody else can help you? We're begotten. Peter says we're born again. We're enslaved but we're freed. Redeemed, redeemed very good. Transformed, justified. justified, that's a great one. We're forgiven. We are made whole. We are made new. We are made alive. I mean, that's just our salvation. Those are all the descriptors of our salvation. And each of those is a wonderful facet of our salvation, what God has done in our life. But then there's a whole bunch more that describe our relationship with God and our relationship even with each other. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The father is the vine dresser. And we're called to abide in the true vine. And when we do, we'll bear much fruit. That's another metaphor that he uses to describe us. We're also described as a physical body. Paul writing to the Corinthian church and he describes us as the church as a physical body. Jesus is the head. Each of us is part of the body. We have a place. We have a role. We have a function. There's expectation that we would participate. And when all of us do, we, we help to grow each other. We edify ourselves in love, as he says to the Ephesians. We're described like sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd. He's our chief shepherd. He laid down his life for us. We know his voice. He calls you by name. It's a great, beautiful metaphors, these pictures of us and our relationship with God and with each other. We're, de we're described as a family. God is our father. We've been adopted. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're placed into this new relationship as the family of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in the family of faith, Romans chapter 8. And there's many more. We're described as soldiers. We're described as wrestlers. We're described as salt. We're described as, as light. Paul says, hey, uh, we're like walking Bibles. We're living epistles. People see our life and read our life. So we're living letters of God's love. We're described as a field, a farming field. So many more. We're, we're described, as Jeffrey said, as, as a betrothed bride. In all of those descriptors, Peter then gives us two more that he brings to the conversation. He describes us as living spiritual stones, rocks that are being built together into a spiritual house. And the second one he gives us is that, that we are a holy priesthood and that God has commissioned us and we're called to bring spiritual sacrifices. Now, for our time this morning, we're going to cover just the first one as living stones. And then the Sunday after Easter, we'll come back to the second one because Peter will develop it a little bit more in verses 9 and 10, in which we'll come back to and look at that 
a little more in depth, but for our time this morning, we're going to look at the, the metaphor of being as living stones. Consider what he says, we'll consider what it means for us today. So I draw your attention back to verse 4, where he begins with, we've come to Christ, God called us. We come to Christ, we come to him, and then he says, here's the metaphor, as Jesus is the living stone. And then he adds some other thoughts to that. He's rejected indeed by men, and yet chosen by God and precious. Now, just as there's, you know, a whole bag full of metaphors that describe us and our salvation and our relationship with God, there, there are many more metaphors that describe Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He's the light of the world. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the morning star. He's the alpha and the omega. He is the door. He's, he's our rock. And so Peter adds this imagery for us, that we come to Christ. He is the living stone. Now he leads with this statement, and in many ways, this is his, uh, his thesis on this section. And he's going to develop his thesis, each of those parts, in the rest of his letter. And evidently, Peter has in his mind, as he's writing to encourage the believers in his time, he reaches back to the Old Testament and says, listen, even the Old Testament affirms of this metaphor and that Jesus fulfills the prophetic metaphor of the Messiah using the same imagery of a stones and a cornerstone and specifically being the chief cornerstone and that he was rejected. John 1.11 says that Christ came to his own and his own received him not. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. There at his baptism, God the Father would declare over Christ, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Isaiah chapter 42, there's this prophecy Speaking of the Messiah to come, God speaking through Isaiah says, and he is my servant whom I've chosen. He is my beloved in whom my soul delights and I'll place my spirit upon him. He'll proclaim freedom to the nations. And so Christ fulfilled those prophecies. Now, Peter not only demonstrates how Christ is the fulfillment of these Old Testament pictures and prophecies and promises, but then he ties us to that as well. Because in the next verse, he says, you also as living stones. And then in verse 9, he says, and you are chosen. So just as Christ is a living stone, just as Christ is chosen, and guess what? Just as Christ was rejected and suffered, a lot of his letter is going to be explaining to us how we too will suffer at the hands of others. And that's part of living the life of Christ. And I love this. I, I want to park just for a moment to remember that, that you are chosen by the Father. He opens the letter with that. You've been elect from the foundation of the world. It's God who declares over you, just as he declared over Christ, you are his beloved. You are 
In him, you, he is well pleased. See, God gets to declare that and God gets to decide. And so we'll just start with a, an affirmation for us. Uh, your true worth and your value and your acceptance, it, it's found, your identity, it's found in Christ. And if I can qualify it, Christ alone and nothing else should matter. Our, our tendency is we fight against that because other voices try to tell us otherwise. And sometimes even our own voice tries to tell us otherwise. But what does Peter affirm of us? You also. You also, as living stones, just as Christ is, so are we living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Have you heard the English saying, uh, chip off the old block. I don't know if there's a Japanese equivalent. Is there a Japanese equivalent? Tends to be kind of a tongue-in-cheek or a little bit of a punchy commentary to say, oh, you're just like your, one of your parents, usually your dad. That's generally where it goes, right? And the idea here is that we're just like Jesus. And spiritually speaking, we are a chip off the old block. But just like our heavenly father and just like our savior. Now the Bible tells us when Jesus engages the woman at the well, the Samaritan lady at the well in John chapter four, they have this conversation about identity and spirituality and worship. And Jesus tells her, the father is seeking worshipers. And God is spirit. And those who come to him, those who worship him, have to, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus tells us plainly that God is spirit. So then for us, before we knew the Lord, before we received Jesus Christ, the Bible says we're spiritually dead. There is no way for us to connect to God who is spirit. The only way for us to connect to God who is spirit is in order is for us to then be spiritually alive. And we've been made spiritually alive. We come to faith in Jesus Christ. Peter, or Peter, excuse me, Paul tells the Corinthian church, hey, don't you know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you? And so now the spirit of Christ dwells inside of us. The book of Romans says that we then can cry out, Abba, Father, that we come into relationship. And so if God is spirit and we're spiritually dead, well, how do we connect to that? Well, we have to be spiritually alive. And then when we're made spiritually alive, then we can connect to God, the Father who's spirit. Then we're able to connect to each other. And we, we have this brand new bond outside of emotional, outside of, of physical, outside of, of, of sharing interest. It, there's a brand new uh, bond that you and I enter into. It's a spiritual bond. We're, we are super glued together. By the way, forever. And I, I want to make sure we don't lose sight of the forest as we're looking at a leaf in this tree here. Let's pull back a little bit. Remember, P Peter has tell, told us, God in his great mercy 
He echoes what Ephesians 2 tells us. God in his great love chose you, picked you, pursued you, because he loves you, wants a relationship with you. And through his grace, he calls you and me into this new dynamic relationship. We have a new relationship with God the Father. We have a new relationship with each other. And Peter tells it like it is. He gives us the nitty gritty. Having this new relationship doesn't mean that we're not going to have any more troubles ever. It's not like we get a a card that says life is going to be grand and easy for the rest of your days. Nope. We're still going to have bumps and bruises and sucker punches. But God is with us. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us each other on this journey of life. He's promised that we're going to get to the end. The good work he began in you, he's going to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Right? That's, that's the meta narrative that we've been looking at with Peter so that we can grow strong together. But in that, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are uniquely individual with your likes and idiosyncrasies and your quirkiness. And some of you that like cocoa curry, that's fine. Right? There's grace. And yet, even in our individualism, God has designed us to be interlocking. That yes, we're living stones, but we're not designed to be by ourselves. He puts us together to build something transcendent. The sum greater than just ourselves. Supernatural, wonderful, beautiful. It's a divine and glorious purpose that God has for putting us together in this thing called the church. And he says, we are being built up into a spiritual house. And that, that phrase has a lot there. Let me unpack a couple of things. The, the verb tense of that phrase, it's ongoing. That's the idea. We're being built up and built up and built up. It's perpetual. It's progressive. And it reminds us then we're all works in progress. Even Paul the Apostle says, I haven't arrived. I haven't obtained. I'm still going for it. And that's true of all of us. Whether you've been a week in the Lord or 10 years in the Lord or 50 years in the Lord, we are all works in progress. We're all trophies of God's grace. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustained you. It's the same grace that sanctifies us. And so individually, we are under construction by the Spirit of God. We're justified. We're saved. We have a place. We have a seat in heaven. No one can take that away from you. But we still have the world inside of it. We, we still fight against this nature of sin. And so God's Spirit still works inside of us. Sanctifying us. Purifying us. This coming week, we're going to have some construction actually here in our physical building. So with spring break and um, team taking off and the youth and the school, first I want to say thank you. Thank you for your very kind and generous donations. Some of you guys know we had a 20-year building fund, and so through your giving, we're able to use that 
A couple months ago, we replaced all of the lights to LED, so they're more energy efficient. We replaced two-thirds of our air conditioners, and then now the remaining one-third, and uh, we're going to have some of the windows tinted. Because if you didn't know, the energy rates are going up 40% in the summer. So that's happening. We, we want to be good stewards. This building is about 16 years old or more. I mean, it, it stands, it's been built, we've been blessed to be able to buy it and occupy it, but it's in constant, it needs constant maintenance. We're, we're in a perpetual improvement and stewardship of this place so that we could, you know, honor God and, and have a place that we can gather for worship and proclaim the gospel and teach the word of God and disciple and train up our kids. But I, I know that you know, this building doesn't define us as a church. It just happens to be where we meet right now. See, Peter reminds us that what God is building isn't a physical house. It's a spiritual house. It's a spiritual building. And the spiritual building, the spiritual house is us, people, the community of believers. We are the church. The, the building doesn't find us as church. Again, we want to faithfully steward the material blessings. We want to use this as a means to facilitate spiritual services and fellowship and worship and discipleship and the teaching of the word of God. But relationships and our friendships and our family, family ships, we're, what are we constructing? What are we building? It's each other. That's the point. It's investing in the lives of each other. It's investing in the next generation. And we're not finished yet. It is a perpetual work that God is doing through us. We get to partner with the Lord. And so the phrase of that, that we are being built up, means it's we're recipients of that. We're being built up for what? Well, for us then to offer spiritual sacrifices. So there's two parts. There's God's part and there's our part. There's a work of God, and there's the work that we do. And so God calls us into his family business of building his kingdom. So we get to partner with God. That's the idea. We'll phrase it this way. See, God is actively working in you and me so that we would be actively working together for the purpose of building his kingdom. Consider these verses. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It starts with the Lord. It's God who's working in us. Then our response, well, changes our mind. It changes our will. We respond by service and worship. We, we then do Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Like Popeye the sailor man, right? And then he adds, but his grace to me wasn't in vain, wasn't wasted. But then he adds a really interesting phrase. Nope, 
I busted my hump, my paraphrase, I worked harder than everybody else, all those other vatos. But then he adds, but wasn't me, not I, yet the grace of God who worked with me, in me. There's God working and then us working out what God's working in. Paul writes to the same church, 1 Corinthians 3.10. He says, according to the grace that God has given me. And even Paul uses the same imagery of building and stones. He says, I'm like a master builder. And I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. And he gives a warning, but we got to be careful. Let each one take heed how he builds upon it. That's not only true of us on this side of the cross, but even in the Old Testament. Think about Nehemiah. God gave him a burden and a vision. And his part in that is that he went in obedience to the Lord back to his hometown, to his, his Honseki, back to Jerusalem. And part of his construction project was to rebuild the walls. He didn't rebuild the temple. Other people did that. Haggai and Ezra, there's a whole other construction crew that did that. His part was just the walls. And he didn't do it by himself. Well, he had the burden. He had the vision. God had given him great favor. But God helped rally a team. And so there's a whole crew of them, all of them, who came together and they built and they labored as God worked in them. And that's how God works in our lives. Now, what does that look like? It's going to look different for each of us. The season that you're in, the gifts and talents that you have, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The question, though, we have to answer is, are we being obedient to that? If that is true, or since that is true, are we doing the part that we're supposed to be doing? What's the other metaphor he uses? A holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. We're being built into a spiritual house. We're also being fabricated and fashioned into a priesthood. Now, again, we can read this today, and it just seems like words on a page, but you have to put yourself in the flip-flops of the original audience. This would be shocking. God made you, made me a priest? Remember, the, the original audience, many of them came out of Judaism, right? They're, they're Jewish believers. They are completely accustomed and used to the Old Testament system of priests and sacrifices. That's what they grew up with. Now, some of you like me, you know, I, I, I grew, you know, was raised in the Catholic Church, and uh, it looks very, very different than what we, we do here. I'm grateful for that season, grateful for that foundation. And so this would have shock value for Peter's Jewish audience. What do you mean that we're priests? What do you mean that we're being called to a, a holy priesthood? And Peter drops this kind of a bombshell of a statement. He's going to develop it more in verses 9 and 10. And so we'll, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. But the idea of holy priesthood, holy, we talked about holiness. It's, it simply means to be set apart. It's special use. It's your dress uniforms. It's your 
dresses for the ball. It's the dishes that you only take out during Thanksgiving and Christmas time. Those things that have been set aside for a special use. God sets us aside for a special use. But in that, it means to be clean. It means to be pure. It means to be righteous. And we talked about how that, that doesn't, that, we can't accomplish that on our own, right? N- none of us are righteous. We're made righteous by the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ. But the priesthood, the priesthood was a special calling on a select group of God's people. You had to have the right genes, Levi genes. Make sure you're awake. Make sure you're awake. Not everybody could be the priest. Not everybody could enter the priesthood, even if you wanted to. You couldn't just say, I want a different MOS. Nope. It was reserved for only a select few. And if you wanted to be part of the high priest, you had to have, well, your great, great, your DNA test had to connect you to Aaron. That was the only way. So Peter drops this bomb and says, guess what? Now that you and I are in Christ, that restriction's been removed. Now in Christ, God has commissioned every believer to this role and this responsibility, to this privilege. And how would we rephrase that simply? Again, we'll talk more about this in a couple weeks. It's this, God has called every single one of us. If you name the name of Jesus Christ this morning, God calls you to serve him. And I'll add, and to serve others. That was the function of the priesthood. When God called the tribe of Levi, he called them first to himself. You're going to be a people set apart unto me. And, and that's, we, we cannot get that backwards. Remember, when God calls, we call to God first. We minister to the Lord. We worship the Lord. We love the Lord. Everything else that we do flows from that. And by the way, that's why if you serve here, we strongly encourage you to sit one service and serve one service so that you can be minister, you can minister to the Lord and receive and then give out. I mean, what is the essence of the priestly role? Remember, they were mediators. They, they ministered to God for people. They ministered to people for God. Peter gives us some direction. What what are we to do in this as a a royal priesthood? He says, we offer up, and notice, spiritual. We're a spiritual house, and we offer up spiritual sacrifices. To God, acceptable through Jesus Christ. If we were to go back in time and live under the, the Old Testament priesthood system, The, one of the main duties of being part of the priesthood, your priestly duties, was to offer sacrifices. It was to receive and offer sacrifices on behalf of everybody else, including yourself. You guys remember the book of Hebrews? The good handful of us, we went through the book of Hebrews together, or if you're familiar with it. One of the things that the writer Hebrews uh, tries to encourage, it's similar to Peter, even to James. He's saying, listen, 
God had a planned obsolescence in the Old Testament system. It served a function. It was given of God, but it was designed on purpose to be temporary. The furniture, the fixtures, the sacrifices, the the priesthood, all of it was just, it's this giant picture book that points us to Jesus Christ. And, And it had a planned obsolescence. It expired. And the writer of Hebrews points out to us that fact, but also the problem that comes with that. Because the writer of Hebrews makes the contention, in order for the old system to really work, it would require a perpetual, never-ending cycle of confession and sacrifice over and over and over again. Remember, one of his points is, that's why the priest never sat down. There's no chairs. It's like some of you moms. You're just going and going and going, right? They were always working. Of course, he points to Christ as the high priest and says, but Christ has sat down. The work is finished. The work is accomplished. There's need, the sacrifices aren't needed anymore. But part of the problem of the Old Testament priestly system is that the priests themselves were sinners. And so if, if I were serving in that system, you know, I'd go with Emily and I'm, all right, Emily, we're going to make your sacrifice. And then I get in line right behind her. And then I have to bring more because I'm worse. Right? And so the, the priests themselves had to then stand in line to bring offerings for their own sins. But when Christ came, He came as the one complete, spotless, blameless, sinless, perfect sacrifice to end them all. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. By a single perfect sacrifice, he made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. So, why bring all this up? Physical sacrifices aren't needed anymore. Peter says it's spiritual sacrifices. All right, what, what, how do we bring spiritual sacrifices? Then what does that look like? He doesn't define it for us. Not right here, not right now. He'll start to unpack this more for us later on in terms of how we serve the Lord and how we relate to each other a little bit more, or how we, uh, our family relationships in marriage, our workplace, he's going to develop all of this, but, but we'll just start with this one. Our spiritual sacrifices, worship. And when I say worship, I don't just mean what we do on a Sunday morning before the message, but it's the idea of our lifestyle. It's the idea of what we do every day. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that we openly profess his name. The Bible tells us that we're to present our lives as a living sacrifice. And so the idea then of offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God means we are giving to God, we're surrendering to God something that's of value to us. You know what that often looks like if you're like me? My control. 
my wanting to be in control of all things, my plans, our time, our pursuits, your passions, the things that you tend to gravitate towards in terms of worship or even idolatry, our emotions. So the question that we can be challenged by is, are, are, are we making a sacrifice? Is it really a sacrifice? And if you're like me, if you can relate to me, I suggest sometimes we, we make worship contractual. We want to bargain with God. Well, I'll, I'll do this. I'll worship you and I'll serve you and I'll, I'll give you this, but you need to do this for me first, Lord. Well, I used to do that all the time when I was a kid. Lost my house key. God, I'll be a good boy. Can I find my house key? Or my ID? <laughs> I'll praise God if and only if he does what I want. If not, then I'm not coming. I'm not singing. I'm withholding. I'm not serving. You know, when Job's life was getting wrecked, his wife had the wrong idea. She thought it's contractual. As long as God's blessing us, let's bless God. And she came to him after he was getting wrecked, and she just said, you know what? Why don't we, you just curse God and die. And, and, and Job, in response to her, in Job chapter 2 says, you're, you're, you're speaking like a foolish person. Are we to only accept God's good things? Are we not to accept even those challenging things and the difficult things. So sometimes we, we, we can make worship a deal with God. Sometimes we, we prioritize our convenience, our comfort over consecration. Oh, it's too far. It's too much. I'm going to have to step out of my comfort zone. No, yeah, that's what God wants us to do. That's where we grow. But we, we tend to give God leftovers, right? We hoard our time. It's our time. It's our resources. It's our energy. It's our pursuits. And then if there's anything left, all right, we'll give that to the Lord. Listen, a sacrifice is not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. And there's been times in, in, through the body, people are, tremendously generous as we want to love on, you know, um, Pastor Pascal, for example, in Uganda, right? Recently, when we had our missions um, fundraiser and Lillian Haiti and some of our single moms and families that are in need, thank you. We will bless them through your giving, being the hands and feet of Jesus. And there are times where people call, and, I, and they're well-intentioned. They'll say, hey, um, we, have this, <laughs> one time, we have this car we'd like to donate. Like, oh, okay, I think I know a family that needs a car. Well, the, it doesn't run. In fact, it doesn't have an engine. Like, oh, well, <laughs> it needs new tires. Like, uh, you, you just want to give your junk to us. Uh, that, that's not going to serve us. Right? And sometimes, you know, in our mind, I think well-intentioned, but it's as though, oh, we're going to just use the church or charity as a way to unload our junk. 
It's not a sacrifice. It doesn't cost us anything. So the challenge for us is, it, has it really cost me anything? And so Peter reminds us that we, we can only really do that through to God as we do that through Jesus Christ, right? In ourselves, we have no credential. We have no capacity. It's only in Christ that we have the ability. Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? Nobody. But through Christ, we are. Then he goes on, verse 6, therefore, it's also contained. So now he quotes scripture as proof of what he's, you know, what, what if he's uh, writing out. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter's saying that this isn't just my metaphor that I've made up. It's one that the Old Testament, God's word has already given us. Peter's just saying this is how Christ even fulfilled the Old Testament metaphor of the Messiah to come, that Jesus fulfilled this picture as he does all Old Testament prophecy and promises. So he quotes from Isaiah 28. Now Zion, by the way, is just the ancient name of Jerusalem. And we find out that even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers used metaphors. And this particular one is a chief cornerstone. Put in Jerusalem. We know it's a metaphor because he says, then who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Next summer, early to mid-June, we're going back to Israel. And I would love to take as many of you guys that want to come. It's been six years since we've been, five years. So we usually try to go every, about every two, every three years. If you've never been, I guarantee you, it'll change your life. You'll never read the Bible the same ever again. It's amazing. And one of the things that you will notice, or if you've been, you already know, is when you go to Israel, it's a land full of rocks. It's just a lot of rocks, a lot of stones. So much so, that's what they use to build their buildings. Even today, you go and it's Jerusalem stone. It's beautiful. But one of the things that we'll get to do that we've done in the past is we will go in what's called the rabbi tunnel. So we'll walk underneath the temple mount. It's amazing. And one of the amazing things that they still haven't figured out is how do they move these giant stones? I think like 10 feet long. And, and put them in such a way that you can barely put a piece of paper between the, the um, seams of these huge stones. One of the other things that we do is we usually go to the place called the Temple Institute. It's not a Christian place, it's a Jewish place because they are ready for the new temple to be built. They have all of the artifacts. Maybe you've seen the news, right? The birth of the red heifers, really fascinating. But one of the things that we often see when we go is they drive around the city on this huge truck, the cornerstone, the, a new cornerstone they're going to use to build the new temple. It's massive. The cornerstone is the stone that goes in the corner. How about that for some uh, knowledge? 
And the chief one, it means it's the first one. And it's the first one that goes down. And then all the other stones, the corners then line up to that. And if they're not lined up to that, you're going to have structural compromise. And so the, the, the walls that are built and the supporting structure that's built off of the chief cornerstone need to be aligned to that chief cornerstone. Now, some would even take the imagery further, speaking of Christ as the chief cornerstone, that both the Jew and the Gentile coming together as Christ as Savior, Christ is the cornerstone. That's a beautiful imagery. And certainly the Bible says, whoever believes on him won't be put to shame. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter points to the Old Testament picture and says, that's Christ. And we need to be aligned to Christ as he's building us into a spiritual house. But then he goes on. He says, and so for you who believe, he's precious. That word precious, it means of great value or sum or honor. It's the highest degree of deference we can give. The question we have to ask ourselves, though, is that how we really feel about Jesus? Commentary I read said, one way to know if you, if you really have biblical faith is to see if Jesus is really precious to you. Can we say that we love the Lord? And if we can say, yes, we love the Lord, the question then is, well, what's the intensity of our infection, affections? What's the depth of our devotion? What's the magnitude of our, of, I'll rhyme, our magnitude of our gratitude? And how that is expressed then in what we do and how we worship and how we serve and how we read the word. If indeed he is precious to us. Peter says, if you know the Lord, then he's precious to you. But here's a contrast. But if you don't know the Lord, he's not. If you're unbelieving, the same Christ who is a rock of our foundation to the non-believer, he is a rock as well, but he's a rock of stumbling. He's a rock of offense. Peter quotes, continue from Isaiah and Psalm 118. To the believer, solid, foundational, the rock of our salvation to the non-believer, they will trip and fall to their own ruin. The same Jesus. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. So Peter speaks of his commentary at the end of verse eight there is of a willful rebellion. The people don't want to surrender their lives to God. They don't want to receive the Lord. So they reject him. They refuse him. And when they do, it's a word of warning. They do so, you do so, to your own undoing. Now, there's a word of comfort that's tucked in all of this. Peter is comforting the believer by showing, listen, the rejection of Christ was already known. God knew that was going to be part of the equation. He foretold it. There's going to be rejection of Christ. It's all part of God's sovereign plan. And those who rejected him and crucified him, will they serve God's ordained purposes? But we'll end with this, and it's a little bit of a sobering ending, so I, I guess I apologize in one sense, but certainly not for the word. God does not make men sinful. 
God does not make man disobedient. That's not how that reads, you know, for which they are appointed. But rather people who remain in their disobedience, people who remain in their sin, will suffer the appointed judgment of God. Here's what Jesus says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he who believes is not condemned. But, contrast, he who does not believe is already condemned. Because he did not, you did not, they did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men, people, love darkness in their sin rather than the light, because their deeds are evil, John 3, 17 through 19. And so the point really simply is to reject Christ is to choose eternal punishment. That's very sobering. And I dare say that God doesn't want that for anybody. See, God loves you. And God sent Christ for you. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God calls you to himself. And when we come to the Lord, then we're saved. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Our identity and our purpose and our value, God brings us into. We're brand new. And God puts us together in this thing called the family of God because for this purpose is to build his kingdom. And we're being built up. We're works in progress. None of us are perfect. And God's actively working in us as we actively work together to build his kingdom. And what that looks like looks different in each of our lives, our season, our giftings. But God asks of us that we give of our time and our talents and our treasures that we might serve him. In two weeks, three weeks, I guess, we'll finish out nine and ten. We'll see the, the rest of the picture of we're chosen generation, that we are a, a royal priesthood, and other things that God has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, your spirit, our time. Together, as we worship, both in song and in reading, studying, meditating, memorizing, meditating upon your word this morning. Lord, thank you. You remind us of our true worth and value. It comes from you. Thank you, God, that we are works of grace. We're still being built up. We haven't arrived yet, like Paul says. We're, we're still pressing forward, upward and onward to the prize of Christ. God, we thank you that it's both a passive and active work. It's you who works in us to both will and to do according to your good pleasure. But Lord, help us to be obedient to our part, that we would serve you and serve others for the gifts and the talents and the treasures that you've entrusted us with. And Lord, help us to remember, you, you, uh, it's not a game. It's life and death. To reject the chief cornerstone is to choose eternal punishment. And I pray that no one would choose that. But they would choose life today. 
choose to give their life to you. Choose to surrender afresh and anew. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we might do the things that you've called us to do and to do them with joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.